0: Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up uh, to that text. And as you open to that passage, you'll probably know it is a familiar one. It's one that we look at as a church, if not something that we preach on every year, it is something that we look at every year on Palm Sunday and the Sunday before Easter, uh, this um, time just a few days before uh, remembering the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday. And, and one of the benefits of uh, having such a familiarity with a passage such as this is we got a bit of an understanding of the significance of this moment, of, of, of this day. Uh, we don't even have to open our Bibles, and we realize that this story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is a very important one. We understand Jesus arrives in Jerusalem during the Passover. We uh, understand that Jesus is greeted by crowds who are shouting, Hosanna. And we even understand that that this Text uh, speaks to the fulfillment of a number of different Old Testament prophecies with Jesus' coming to Jerusalem. So, this familiarity is, is a good thing, but also at the same time, this familiarity can be a hindrance to us. It can mean that we readily tune out to what God is trying to say to us because we have heard this before. And a fair bit of my responsibility this week, my own study, and, and this morning was to first remind myself. And then to remind each and every one of us here this morning that we don't, in fact, know everything about this passage. In fact, the the significance of this passage is something that we probably miss because we are so familiar with it. And so with that in mind, before we turn our attention to Mark chapter 11, I just want to remind us of something from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. And this tells us one of the most important themes in the Gospel of Mark that is culminating here with Mark chapter 11. Mark 1, 1 through 3 says this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark begins his gospel with a declaration of who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is the Son of God. And of course, we may say, well, what exactly does that mean? And Mark gives us the answer. He gives us this answer by quoting two passages from the Old Testament, one from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, and then one in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. These are the two quotations that we find in verses 2 and 3 of the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Both of those verses speak to this time When God is going to come, and when God is going to make everything right, all of the broken things will be made new, they will be remade, and there will be no more pain anymore. But before God does that, according to the book of Malachi, he sends a messenger, a messenger who will prepare the way. And as we read the rest of Mark chapter 1, we see that this is John the Baptist. John comes proclaiming a message of of a baptism of repentance from sins. And the question is, why? Well, logic can help us out here. If someone is sent to prepare the way for someone else, then what must follow is that we probably aren't ready yet. If, if the way needs to be prepared, then people are not yet ready. We don't go frantically cleaning our house for company if it's already clean. Students don't frantically cram for a test if they have already studied. It is not those who are ready who need to be prepared, but instead it is those who are not ready that need to be prepared. Mark tells us that John has been sent to prepare the way. That God sends someone to prepare the way is a sign of grace. He doesn't want people to be unprepared for when he comes. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through two, one and 2 and, and, and beyond that, but we're just going to look at the first two, give us uh, the answer, the description of what is going to take place when the Lord comes. Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Malachi tells us that uh, someone is being sent to prepare the way, and what is the way, what is coming? What is coming? Well, it is the Lord himself. God is coming. More specifically, God is coming to his temple, the place where he has chosen to dwell on earth. The king is coming home. And in this passage this morning, we see exactly that. The king comes home. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. This passage is oftentimes called the triumphal entry it tells us of jesus's entrance into jerusalem but i think more important than that it tells us of jesus's entrance into the temple because the lord according to malachi the lord will come into his temple and the overarching question based off of the beginning of the gospel of mark is are we ready are the people in jesus's day ready John the Baptist has been sent to prepare them, to make them ready, because the Lord is coming into his temple. The question is, are they ready? Let's take a look, starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. And bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, we first pause and recognize the great gift it is to have your word. God, we rejoice that we do not have a God who is far off, who is distant, who is unknowable, but one who has come near and has revealed himself to us. And God, with the Apostle John, we rejoice in the great love that the Father has for us that he would call us children of God. And so as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would prepare our hearts, you would prepare our minds to hear from you, that you would be at work in our hearts, calming distractions and helping us to hear what you would have us to hear, whatever our circumstances are today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our text, we see Jesus' identity revealed in three parts. First, in the preparations to enter Jerusalem. Second, in the entrance into Jerusalem, and then finally Jesus' entrance into the temple. Let's take a look at each of these in turn, first starting with Jesus' preparations to enter Jerusalem. Beginning of verse 1 again. Now, when they had drawn near, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, I'm going to pause right there, This is a moment of climax. This text opens exactly where last week's left off. Jesus is one of thousands of pilgrims who are making their way to Jerusalem during the Passover. There is this 18-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a difficult journey. We have a photo uh, that shows what it looked like. It's actually a pretty... Beautiful photo. And then this shows the uh, difference of, of elevation change on the journey to Jerusalem. It was a significant change of journey, uh, of, of elevation, a strenuous journey where you would go from 850 feet below sea level to 2,300 feet above sea level by the time you reached Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And during this journey, there was an electricity in the air. As the pilgrims would journey to Jerusalem, they would draw near to this city of their ancestors, and they were celebrating God's deliverance for those ancestors. The Passover, of course, is the celebration of God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of the hands of Egypt, out of slavery to the Egyptians. And there is this expectation in the first century that God had delivered his people in the past, and someday, God will do it again. And the Old Testament is filled with promises that God will do exactly that. And as Jesus and his disciples reach the crest of the Mount of Olives, this text slows. And Jesus and his disciples, they're standing on the top of this mountain, and they're overlooking Jerusalem. They're just over a mile from Jerusalem itself, and they're seated a couple hundred feet above it. The Mount of Olives, the the crest of it, is just a couple hundred feet above Jerusalem itself. And here, they can see the city of David. They can see Jerusalem for the first time on their journey. And there's this electricity in the air, their beloved city. The destination of their pilgrimage is at last before them. And holding prominence in their view of Jerusalem stands the temple. We have a picture of the temple here. Um, The temple was the place where their worship was centered. When they would pray, not in Jerusalem, they would still focus and pray toward the temple. The temple was absolutely massive in the first century. It was one of the most impressive temples in the entire world at that time. It had a footprint in Jerusalem that actually took up over a fifth Of the land area in Jerusalem, but it occupied an even larger place in the hearts of the people. This is the place where sacrifices were offered day after day after day. This was a sign of God's presence and God's blessing with the people of Israel. And here is Jesus with his disciples standing on the Mount of Olives, and they're they're likely overcome with emotion at the sight of the temple. This way, as we remember over the last couple months as we've been studying this book, the way that Jesus is on, it begins hundreds of miles north in Caesarea Philippi, and now they have arrived in Jerusalem. And Jesus' disciples surely think that It has come to an end. Jesus, the long-awaited king, he's going to enter Jerusalem, and his kingdom will finally arrive. And at first, that's exactly what seems like it's going to take place. Notice verse 1 through 3. And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Jesus calls two of his disciples, we don't know which ones, and, and he sends them on an errand. And his instructions here hint that his identity is as Israel's long-awaited king is about to be revealed. He is the one who is about to make all things new. And I want us to just consider five ways in these couple of verses. From Jesus' instructions that reveal his identity as the long-awaited Messiah. First, this takes place on the Mount of Olives. Jesus gives this command from the top of the Mount of Olives. The prophet Zechariah prophesied in chapter, I think it's chapter 13, maybe it's 14, uh, that, that the end of time would be ushered in from the Mount of Olives. That judgment from the for the nations would come from the beginning at the Mount of Olives. Jewish tradition after Zechariah was written actually believed that the Mount of Olives would be the place where the end and where God's kingdom would come. So this takes place on the Mount of Olives. Second, notice the, the term Jesus used to refer to himself. He calls himself the Lord in verse 3. Now, this title could just be one of respect. The word Lord is uh, very similar to our use of the word Lord here. It can just be a term of respect, like master or someone in a place of prominence, or it could be a a referral to the name of God. And even if Jesus' disciples did not catch this connection between the title Lord and Jesus' identity, we are supposed to. What's more, if we look at this, we can see that this is a declaration of Jesus' mission. Well, why does Jesus need a cult? It's because the Lord has need of it. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and this is a part of God's plan from the very beginning. Things are happening right now in this moment that God has ordained from before the foundation of time. And Jesus is following his father's plan. Why does Jesus need a colt? Well, it's because Jesus is going to fulfill his father's plan and he's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Speaking of the fact that this is a colt, it's prophesied in the Ze- book of Zechariah that when the Messiah comes, he would come to Jerusalem riding on a young colt. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. The other gospel writers, as they tell of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, they focus on this prophecy a great deal, a whole lot more than Mark does. But this prophecy is still here. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt as a sign of his identity. Next, Jesus' actions are a, a completely appropriate for a king. If you or I were to send someone to go take a donkey without permission, we would be nuisances at best and horse thieves at worst, but a king has the right to conscript anyone or any animal into his service as he needs. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He needs a colt. And so he conscripts one into his service for the remainder of his journey to Jerusalem. And the final thing that we see, one more thing from Jesus' command, notice that he says the colt is one that has never been sat on before. It has never been broken in, and as such, it can be set apart for sacred duty. Tradition prohibited anyone from sitting on the king's animals, and so it is here. This king has need of an animal, a specific animal, one that has never been ridden on before, and so he sends his disciples. Do you see how many different ways that just these two and a half verses speak to the identity of of Jesus they don't shout his identity remember the Gospel of Mark if you've been with us as we've been studying this book Mark rarely shouts Jesus's identity instead he he veils it and says those who have ears to hear and eyes to see they will understand do you see who Jesus is according to these verses let's keep going four through six. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So Jesus is given these instructions in in the first three verses here, and then his disciples go and they find everything exactly how Jesus has said that they would be. And the question, of course, is how exactly does Jesus know that these things are going to be this way? How does Jesus know the details all the way down to the smallest of them? And some people say, well, Jesus actually had made preparations beforehand. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus had been to Jerusalem before this, that Jesus actually had some very good friends in the town of Bethany, and it's entirely possible that, that Jesus knew all of these details because he had orchestrated them, that he was a good planner. He had planned ahead and arranged things beforehand. If you hold to that view, that's a perfectly acceptable view. There's nothing wrong with holding that. But I think in the context of Mark as a whole, the question to how does Jesus know all these things is answered a little bit differently. Jesus does these things. Jesus knows these things because he is all-knowing. So consider For example, Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, is the one who knows the innermost thoughts of people's hearts. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? This is the same Jesus who calmed the storm with nothing but his voice. Mark chapter 4, and he awoke and rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is the same Jesus who provided food for his people in the wilderness, Mark chapter 6. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Who is this Jesus? Well, he is the one who walks on water. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Who is this Jesus well he's the one who makes the deaf hear he's the one who gives the blind sight just as it is prophesied by that God will do when he comes and returns to earth Isaiah chapter 35 then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy How is it that Jesus knows all of these details of what the disciples will find all the way down to the smallest? Well, if we've been paying attention to the Gospel of Mark, to this point, the answer seems obvious. It's not because he's just the Messiah. Jesus is not just the long-awaited king. Jesus is God himself come to earth. And here's why I think that matters. If we flip forward a couple pages in the Gospel of Mark, we are going to see the end of the story. We are going to see that Jesus' time in Jerusalem, it does not end with a crown, but it ends with a cross, and it would be so easy for us to look at this and see it as a tragic accident, or to think that, well, Jesus knew that the death, that his death was coming, that he had to die for other people to pay for sins of humanity, but even though he knew his death was imminent, he still didn't understand or know all of the details. And he was left out of all of the specifics. He didn't know what, what day he would exactly die. He was left wondering how God was going to bring about these things. And he was just along for the ride. But that's not the case. Jesus does not enter Jerusalem as an unknowing victim. He enters Jerusalem completely aware of what is to come and, and having complete confidence in his Father because of that. Every step that he takes... On the road to Calvary, he takes with complete trust that his Father is in charge. Every conversation that Jesus will have this week, every moments of disagreement, every obstacle, every twist, every turn from this moment, from the beginning of his life to the moment where he dies, Friday at 3 p.m., Jesus knows it is coming. See, Jesus is not caught off guard or surprised by anything that comes to him in this final week of his life. He knows that temptations are coming. He knows that oppression and opposition are coming. He knows that abandonment is coming, and yet he remains faithful to his Father. And whatever you face today, I think this is good news because it reminds us that he is completely aware of what faces you as well. Henry Martin was a missionary, a British missionary in the early 1800s to India. And once he was asked why he would go onto such a dangerous mission field, and he responded with a simple but profound trust in God's sovereign hand in his life. He simply just said this, if God has work for me to do, I cannot die. If God has work for me to do, I cannot die. And that's the exact same trust that we see from Jesus here. He has a complete confidence in his Father's plan and that nothing will happen to him outside of his Father's plan. And we can have the exact same confidence in our lives as well, no matter what life may have in store for us, that God rules over it all and God knows it all. The old hymn says it well. Ye faithful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Whatever may come, God remains seated on his throne. This is true in Jesus' life, and it is true in your life as well. Jesus's identity is revealed in his preparations to enter Jerusalem. It's also revealed on his journey into Jerusalem as well, verses 7 and 8. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Let's pause right there. Jesus sets off toward Jerusalem and again we see his true Identity on display if we have eyes to see. It's not clear. It's not something that is as uh, overt, but it is there if we are willing to look. The spreading of palm branches and the spreading of cloaks on the road was something that was fit for the arrival of a king. In fact, we see this in the Old Testament, the coronation of Jehu in Second Kings chapter nine. This is how the people welcome him as he enters into Samaria to be crowned king. The important thing to recognize is that this is not overt. If the Roman authorities would have known and understood that Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem was a coronation ceremony, this parade that he was going to come and be crowned king, that they would have uh, they would have arrested him on sight. They wouldn't have even let him enter into the city. This accusation would have been brought up in Jesus's trial a few days later before Pilate. And the crowds, they, they seem to respond to Jesus in, in a way that is, is fitting for a king, but it isn't immediately obvious to those who aren't looking for a king. And the same is actually true of the words that the crowd says in verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord!' Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, to understand the significance of these cries from the crowd, we have to understand a bit more of what it was like to celebrate the Passover in the first century of Israel. The Passover, one of the largest holidays for the Jewish people. Jewish people would gather to Jerusalem. They'd come from all over the known world. And on the way to Jerusalem they would begin by singing a selection of psalms called the Hallel, which means praise, and that's where we get our word hallelujah from. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 are called the Hallel. And these psalms would be sung over and over by people as they made their way to Jerusalem. They would sing these songs as of expectation of what God would do, and it culminated with Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is this psalm declaring the victory of, of God's chosen king over his enemies. Especially relevant for us in Mark chapter 11, Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now this connection becomes even clearer when we leave one of the words untranslated here. We pray, Hosanna, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So here's what's taking place as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. People see Jesus, they encounter him on the road to Jerusalem, and they're actually not crying out something special for Jesus. They're actually saying what they would say to any pilgrim who is entering Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a, a typical Passover greeting. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the world. It's not a declaration about who Jesus is as much as this, this saying, this traditional greeting at Passover that someone would say to anyone who entered into Jerusalem for the Passover. In a way, it's very similar if you are familiar with Christian traditions on Easter. When people on Easter morning will see each other as, as Christians, oftentimes they will say, He is risen. And the response is, he is risen indeed. And this is a similar statement. It is a statement that people would greet each other for this special time of the year as they celebrated the Passover. So when the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this isn't actually a statement of faith from the crowds, that Jesus is the one who is going to come and deliver them from their enemies, that he is going to come and establish God's kingdom. It's actually just a declaration of confidence and hope that someday that's going to happen. One day, God is going to come and bring his kingdom to earth. Of course, the irony is, for us who know the rest of the story, here are crowds of Jewish people, the Lord's people, crying out, Hosanna, which literally means, Save us, Lord. While Jesus, whose name literally means the Lord saves, is entering into the city where he will save not just the Jewish people, but people from every tribe and every language and every nation and tongue. That Jesus is not coming just to bring the the kingdom of their father David, but also the kingdom of God. And the crowds have no idea of the significance of what they are saying. What they are thinking is just this typical Passover greeting. This this quoting of Psalm 118 is a sign of their faith in God's future deliverance. It's actually a statement of fact. It's found, it's fulfillment in Jesus. That Jesus is coming to free his people, to deliver his people, to save his people. Not from Roman oppression, but instead from their slavery to sin. And how does the passage end? Well, it's actually very anticlimactic. Here is Jesus. He enters into Jerusalem in what could be seen as a coronation parade. And the crowds are shouting praises to him, whether they realize it or not. And then he arrives in Jerusalem, and he heads to the temple. And what happens? Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem. And went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, heads to the temple. Remember the words of Malachi chapter 3. We read the beginning of our time together. Mark alludes to them at the beginning of his gospel. He wants us to be thinking of them when we read this passage. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And this verse right here is that moment. At long last, the Lord has come to his temple. And do you notice the The context of Psalm 118 here, what I read at the very end of verse 26, in addition to what the crowds are shouting, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what is at the very end of verse 26? We bless you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 is supposed to be the song of God's victory, of God's deliverance for his people through his chosen king. And it is supposed to culminate and end in the temple, in the house of the Lord. And so when we get to Jerusalem, we should be expecting big things here. We should be expecting that Jesus would come into his temple where he is crowned king. We should expect all of Jerusalem to be waiting for Jesus at the temple to declare, save us, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you here from the house of the Lord. We should expect the priests and the religious authorities to be waiting for Jesus at the temple and say, the Lord has finally come into his temple. This should be the high point. This should be the climax of Jesus' life and ministry. This should be the beginning of his kingdom that will endure forever. What do we find? He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus enters into his temple. No one is waiting for him. Even the crowds that sang to Jesus as he was entering into Jerusalem have left him. There are no priests. There are no religious authorities. There are no choirs awaiting for the Lord as he finally arrives in his temple. No one is here when the king comes home. And the silence of this passage, when Jesus gets to the temple... Is deafening. It declares the indifference of Jerusalem to her king. Throughout his gospel, Marcus stressed that Jesus is not interested in crowds who are attracted to miracles and exorcisms, he's not interested in those who are following him just because of the entertainment factor. Jesus is instead sought after those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Those who may not have everything about Jesus figured out, but they're willing to pursue him, an act of faith, in order to know more about him. Faith is found in the most unlikely of places, and it is found in those, to use the language of Jesus' parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, who have deep roots that last. It's for those who hear and take heed of Jesus' high cost of discipleship and calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The Gospel of Mark opens with a declaration that God has sent a messenger, John the Baptist, to prepare the people of God for God's coming. John is crying out in the wilderness to repent, that the kingdom of God is near. Bear fruit in keeping with that repentance because the King is coming. And then we get to Mark chapter 11. And that moment is finally here. The Lord has entered into his temple, and we see, unfortunately, that no one is waiting for him. That almost no one is ready. One commentator puts this into words far better than I can. This text is traditionally called the triumphal entry. That is an appropriate designation for Matthew 21, 1-11 through 11, and John 12, 12-19, but scarcely for Mark. Matthew says, quote, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Luke reports that the city was so electrified that the stones were ready to cry out. Mark's account is noteworthy for what does not happen. The whole scene's, whole scene comes to nothing. Like the seed in the parable of the sower that receives the word with joy but has no roots and lasts but a short time. The crowd disperses as mysteriously as it assembled. Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. And we come to the end of this passage, we can ask, well, what exactly does this mean for us today? The king has come home. But his people are not ready. And I think this text is declaring simply one thing, and that's this. The king's home is not found in a temple or a palace, but is found with those who receive him in faith and repentance. Jesus does not make his home in a temple or in a palace, but with those who would receive him in faith and repentance. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, Jesus enters into the temple, he finds that no one is waiting for him. And in a shocking turn of events, the, the king has no home in Jerusalem. He doesn't even stay the night in Jerusalem, but is instead sent to a village, Bethany, where he stays the remainder of the week. The Lord comes into his temple, but he has no home in his temple. Instead, the king Jesus will make his home with those who are ready with those who receive him in faith and in repentance. And so the question that this, ta- this text asks each and every one of us this morning is this. Does the king have a home with you? Does the king have a home with you? What do your interactions with Jesus look like? Are you like the religious authorities like the priests, those who are noticeably indifferent to who he is and what he has come to do? Is Christianity something you only, quote-unquote, do out of habit to acquiesce to the expectations of your parents or your spouse or because that's what culture says you should do? If your heart were revealed, would it show something completely and utterly indifferent to the message of the gospel? Does the king have a home with you? Are you like the crowds, those who joyfully receive Jesus as one of them, who is amazed at all of the amazing things that he does in healing others and teaching with authority, but at the end of the day, you miss the point of the gospel. That Jesus is just simply a nice add-on to your life in order to help you improve some of the weaknesses and character flaws that you struggle with, but at the end of the day, you don't really care for his declaration in Mark chapter 8 about this idea of repenting, such an outdated term, this idea that you must follow him wholeheartedly and exclusively. That's an unreasonable ask if you ask me. Do you have a heart? repentance and faith where the king can find his home. Last week, we looked at the story of Bartimaeus. We saw that Bartimaeus is probably the pinnacle example of faith in the gospel of Mark. This is a man who cannot see. He is blind, and yet he is the only one who can see who Jesus really is, that Jesus is the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. What about you? Does the king have a home with you? Recall what Jesus did with the cult as his right as a king. He conscripted it into his service because he had need of it. Have you ever considered that Jesus, as your king, has the exact same rights over your life? To make whatever demand of you that he should desire, that indeed, Because of the gospel, that anyone who would come to him in faith must also pick up their cross daily and follow him. To adapt the quote from Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch of your life that the Lord Jesus does not declare mine. Does the king have a home with you? I don't know your heart this morning as you look inward as this passage calls us to do. Some of you must say, I I think so. What Jesus calls me to do, I am ready to trust and I'm ready to obey no matter how hard that may be. Every morning you might wake up and you might echo the words of Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. And the salvation that's been offered to you in the gospel has sparked this unquenchable fire in your life that leads to this earth-shaking obedience. And if you, if that's you, the king dwells with you. You have eyes to see, you have ears to hear, and as you gaze upon him each and every day, you will fall more and more deeply in love with your Savior and King. But if that's not you, this passage is a terrifying warning. Judgment comes for those who do not receive their King in faith and repentance. Judgment awaits those who are not ready, who do not pick up their cross, who do not follow their king. Judgment awaits those where the king has no home. You see, the king's home is not found in a a temple or in a palace, but with those who would receive him in repentance and faith. Are you ready for the king? Does the king have a home with you? Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this text, I want to start by just asking that you would reveal to each and every one of us the areas of our lives that we still stubbornly hold on to. Where we say, yes, you may be the king of all of these different areas in in my life, but not this one. God, give us eyes to see you, but also awareness of our rebellion against you. Help us to be a people who prepare for your return that will be found ready for your coming by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us be a people who cling to the message of the gospel and let it transform each and every area of our life. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.